this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. As we get started, um, as Missy said, we're in this series called Family Dinner. And with Thanksgiving this week, you know, for a lot of people, we have memories of joining around the dinner table for the family dinner when it comes to you know, Thanksgiving, maybe you had that Christmas gathering, maybe you grew up and the family just got around the dinner table every night. That's not a common occurrence anymore. More and more statistics say that families do not gather around the family table. Everybody just kind of eats on their own because everybody's got a busy schedule. We got to get to soccer. We got to get to the next thing. But there is something about sitting down and having that FaceTime with one another. And sometimes it's awkward like we just saw. Uh, I don't know if anybody's done the Pledge of Allegiance for a prayer before. But, uh, but every time we get together, there is that place of being real and genuine. And what my hope is today is to be as real and genuine with you as I can. Uh, it was about one year ago that I was able to take over um, in the lead pastor role here at the church, and it's been a fun journey. But a lot of my role as a pastor, um, if we actually say, what does the word pastor mean? Well, it comes from this idea of being a shepherd, that you're to care for sheep, right? And so I hate to tell you, the Bible kind of refers to you guys as sheep. So here you are. Uh, My job is to help coach you, guide you. Uh, A a shepherd oftentimes has, what's that big thing? Staff. Staff. What's the other word for it? A stick. It's a, sometimes called a stick, Mom. A, a, a crook. A crook, right? right? That's so uh, what, what is that used for? What's a, what's a shepherd use that for? To, to pick the sheep up off the ground or to save them from falling off a cliff, to, to help them to go the right direction. Um, sheep need to be moved along. Sheep don't always like to move. They like to do their own thing. And so it's a weird thing to be now in this position and have to try to move you, right? And as we're in a series in which we're talking about food, um, all of us love food. You may not love all food, but you love your kind of food. We all have our preferences, but food really in our culture today, when we talk about it, it's almost a sensitive subject because we are in a very much of like a a diet culture. And whenever we talk about food, people sometimes get a little uptight, you know, because Let's be honest, as Americans, we have this tendency to overindulge in food. When they do studies of countries and obesity rates, well, we tend to win. We, we are the heavy hitters. We are the ones who dominate in that category. And so it, it, to talk about food always kind of comes into this place of like, well, where are you going to go? What are you going to say about food? Is this going to be where I feel judged? Yada, yada, yada. So as we step into this, you know, The conversation around food often centers on the idea of change. All right, so sometimes like when you're a kid, you're not eating your vegetables, right? And so your parents are trying to change you to eat your vegetables. So they lie to you and tell you, hey, if you don't eat that, you won't grow up to be big and strong. Yes, you still can. But that's what they tell you. Uh, My parents told me, listen, there's kids over in other countries that aren't going to have any food so you need to eat your food. And I'm like, I don't think they're going to eat this food. This is not the good food. Like, I can't get it to them. It will spoil. So we have all these things that we try to do to manipulate people to change their food. But I, I, I watched back in the day. Anybody remember The Biggest Loser on TV? It was like 17 seasons. I had no idea it was on that long. Um, 17 seasons. You remember the premise of the show, right? They would get these people who had, for whatever reason, came to a place in which they were unable to change 
their weight. They were unhealthy. They were very overweight. And so they would enter into a competition. It was a real-life competition, which they'd have trainers, and they'd have dietitians, and they'd have these people, and it was highly intense. And so they would work them out all day long. They would change their food. They would change everything. And you won if you lost the most amount of weight. So that was why you were the biggest loser. You lost the most amount of weight. What's interesting about the show, and some of you guys know this, the show has since been canceled. Um, But what they found is that after 30 weeks on the show, the average weigh-in for the average contestant, when they finished the show, they weighed about 199 pounds. That was the average, okay? So you went 30 weeks, you lost all your weight, you're weighing 199. What they did is they tracked these people and said, what did they weigh six years later? So from the last time that they were on television with a weigh-in to six years later, what's happened to them? And what they found is that almost all of them put all the weight back on. After six years, the average weigh-in was not 199, it was now 290. And so we have these contestants that for whatever reason were stuck. They desired change. They wanted to change their body, but they couldn't do it on their own. So they saw the TV show as an opportunity to get the change that they wanted. The problem with the change that they received is that it wasn't long-term. They got short-term change. They got short-term results. They got some kudos. They got some pats on the back. But as far as their life being different, their lifestyle didn't change. And as I further read about this and investigated it, what they came to find out is that these contestants addressed the symptom. They addressed the weight, but they didn't address the problem that was causing the weight. See, they found in almost all of the contestants that they all had an underperforming thyroid. So without their thyroid properly functioning, their weight was never going to be properly regulated. Who knew? Some of you are like, really? Was that part of this? Yeah, you can deep dive. Google's a thing. So here's what we found is that the show wanted to help these people change, but the change they provided wasn't long-term. They were disillusioned. They were like, yay, I've got my new weight. And then they fell right back into their old ways because they dealt with symptoms instead of the root cause. Everybody with me? We all do the same thing. And see, for us, when we come into a church setting, we got to realize that change is a big deal. Like, I know a lot of you are like, I don't like change. Well, you're not going to like being a Christian because Jesus is all about changing you. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're perfect. Let me give you a gold star. He says, oh, my goodness, there's some work to do, and I can transform your life. I can change you. So what God is doing, I don't know if you know this or not, when you begin to follow him is he begins to change you. You don't just get to like say, hey, I want to keep living my way, but I want to go to heaven. He said, that's not how this works. You have to stop doing your thing and follow me. And as you do, you're going to change. And so our attitude towards change is really a big deal because it is foundational to being a Christian. Jesus said things like, if you want to know the product of a person's life, you got to look at the, the fruit of their life. Uh, people are a lot like trees. The fruit that they produce tells you a lot about where they're rooted. If you're a Christ follower, then you should have Christian fruit in your life. If you don't have Christian fruit, well, you may not be rooted in the person of Jesus. You may just be trying to use Jesus as a self-help. The Holy Spirit, once we become a Christian, comes and indwells us, and his goal is to change us. So I want you to know this, that God is in the business of changing lives. And I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because if you've ever lived your life on your own power, you know it's not so good. I need some help. And people don't begin to follow Jesus, I'll be honest with you, until they realize it doesn't work on their own. 
people don't step over the line of faith until they're ready for change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we read this. It says that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ, okay, you've become a Christian. Here's what they've become, a new person. All right, that means that they've changed. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. You know, a good name for a church would be New Life. Yeah, see what I did there. When we follow Jesus, we become new. But if we're a new people, why do we need to change? Well, because we face the struggle of becoming more like Jesus and falling back to our old way of living. We need to change because we're supposed to become more like Christ and less like what we were. See, after meeting Jesus, the thing that some of us come to find is that our sinful training and habits remain. I have been trained in a lifestyle of sin. I stepped over the line of faith. All of those habits and that way of thinking is still there. That's where I need to change. No one understood the concept of change probably more than the uh, Apostle Paul in the Bible. He went from being a guy named Saul who hated and killed Christians. He was a murderer to becoming one of the most influential Christians of all time. I mean, that's a pretty big life change. And here's what he said when it came to this idea of change. In Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, he says, I don't really understand myself. Anybody feel like that? You're like, I have a therapist for that. Uh, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I don't know if you've ever had a... Uh, habit, uh, a bad habit that you've tried to break and a, a struggle, and maybe you've even prayed, God, deliver me from this, free me from this, and, and you're like, man, that's been me. I don't want to do this, but all of a sudden I find myself doing this. I'm doing the very thing that I hate. And he goes on, he says, but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Like, I can't, like, lie about this and say it's okay. No, it's not okay. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. I can just picture Paul writing these words. Like, all right, I want to communicate to them about change. I want to do what's good. I do. But I don't. I better add that in there, but I don't. I don't think I'm communicating fully. I don't want to do what's wrong. Okay, I want to do what's right. I said that. I don't want to do what's wrong. But I struggle to do it anyway. Like, talk about the inner conflict. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't seem to do it. I think all of us have wanted change in our life. We've all approached change. We've all desired change. But I think a lot of times, like the biggest loser, we've only been addressing surface issues. We've only been addressing the symptoms. We haven't always gotten down to the root, which is why I'm liking the class that we're doing on Wednesday nights, which, by the way, there's no service this Wednesday because of Thanksgiving. We'll start back up on November 29th. But what we're doing is called the deeply formed life. And the illustration that we keep looking at is that of an iceberg. And so the picture is of the iceberg, and, and you can see where the water line is, and you see just the tip of the iceberg, which is, you know, maybe like 10% of the iceberg, and then 90% of that berg is underwater, and so most of us spend most of our life working on the tip, making sure that it looks good. 
I, I, I got the job. I got the, the career. I got the pat on the back. I, I, my, my life looks good. I don't look like a failure. Hey, look, look, I've, I've presented myself. I've cleaned myself up. We, we spend most of our time working on the appearances that we have, but rarely do we dig, dig deep under the water and address the rest of the iceberg. See, I think that the change that God wants is not just addressing the tip. He's trying to change us from the deepest part of our being. He's trying to do a transformation of us that's not from the outside in, but it's from the inside out. So if we're going to change, we have to stop thinking about change the way that we do. We have to change how we're going to change. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, it says this. It says, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, guess what? He'll do it. I love this part of the verse where it says that God himself wants to make you holy and whole. He wants to put you together the right way. And it's not just spiritually. He's not just trying to change your spirit. He's trying to change you spirit, soul, and body. Now, a lot of times you guys hear me talk about this. We'll put this diagram up here. This here is you. There are three parts of your being. There's your spiritual part of you. There's your soul. There's your body. Uh, the, the spirit would be the word pneuma in Greek, and it's the part of you that's going to have connection to God. It's the part of you that's going to have relationship with him. But then there's your soul, which is more of like your psyche. It's like the real person of who you are. It's where we would say that your mind, your will, your emotions live. Uh, that's your thinker and your chooser and your feeler. They all live in your soul. And all of this gets expressed through your body, which is your physical being. It's what we see. It's the part of you that gets buried in the ground or cremated once you die. But, but does all of you die when your body goes in the ground? No, no, because there's some eternal parts of you, right? And so your soul is going to live on in eternity somewhere, right? There's only two options in case you wondered. There's no like doggy heaven or middle ground. There's no purgatory. There's just heaven or hell. Our soul will live on forever there. Now, depending on what's going on in our spirit, it's going to determine the destination of our soul. If our spirit has come alive and been made new to who Christ is, guess what? You got eternal life. You will live forever. If it hasn't came alive to him, well, then you have eternal death, death that lasts forever. So what's kind of a big deal is that God is trying to put you together, body, soul, and spirit. He's not just focused on one. He's focused on you holistically being all that he wants. So what did he do? He sent Jesus to die on a cross to forgive you of your sin, the sin nature, the part of you that is just like Adam and Eve who ate Oh, yeah, there's our food reference. They ate off of a tree that they weren't supposed to eat. Okay, the issue with Adam and Eve was not that they ate fruit. The issue with Adam and Eve is that they said, I don't want God to be in charge of me. I want to be in charge of me. I'll be God in my own life. Thank you, God, for creating everything. Thanks. Uh, I'm not going to submit to you. Um, you've got knowledge that I don't have. The knowledge of good and evil, I want that knowledge. So I am going to eat off of this because I want to be like you. It's like a Jungle Book song. <laughs> I definitely have young kids. So all of us have a desire 
to run our own lives. I, I would put it this way. We all have a desire for the throne. If there's a throne in our life that's going to be who calls the shots, we all have a desire for it. And here's the thing. We've been created for God to sit on that throne. But when we're born, we are born sitting on the throne. I don't know if you've ever been around little kids. they sitting on the throne. Jesus is not the king of their little hearts. My two-year-old woke my wife up ten times last night. And maybe I'm on my throne because I didn't get up those ten times. I put my earbuds in. I was like, I got to speak at church tomorrow. <laughs> God forgive me. <laughs> we, we have this desire for the throne. And when we're born, we're born sitting on the throne. Which means if the throne actually belongs to another, then I'm committing treason. You know what the penalty for treason is. Yeah, that's not good. It's not good. So we have to figure out how to get off the throne. How do you get off the throne? Well, here's the problem. Most of the times we look at the symptoms. Oh, well, I'm an angry person. Oh, I'm a little bit selfish. Oh, I only want to change these outward things. So we try to be more peaceful. We try to be more kind. We try not to cuss as much. We try to get rid of addictions. And while we can address maybe some of these outward things, we're kind of like the biggest loser. We're not addressing the root. We've got to go under the surface and allow there to be heart work. Just changing the outside isn't the change that God desires. He's wanting to change how you change. In order for us to change how we change, we need more than just information, inspiration, and willpower. That's great. Every Sunday, I stand up, and I give you information, and I try to inspire you. And I hope you have the willpower to do it. But, hey, we're a year in, and some of you, I'm like, I don't know if I've really seen any change in you. So maybe you don't have the willpower, or maybe my inspiration gift is not good. I don't know. Something's broken, because if you're the same person now that you were one year ago, and you're plugged into this church, you're not becoming what you need to become. It's reality, right? I coach runners. If you're not improving your time, something's wrong. We need to address something. Maybe there's an injury. Maybe there's something that we need to rehab. Maybe there's something that we need to take care of. Maybe there's something wrong in your nutrition. Maybe your iron levels are off. There's something that's not causing you to progress. As a Christian, I'm looking at some of you, and it's like, we need to progress, and I don't know what it is. I think some of you have the information. You know the change that you need to do, but you're not doing it. So let me try to inspire you, and if that's not enough, maybe it's because you don't have the willpower to make yourself do it. Now, how, now what do I do? Some of you are like, what do I do? I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do. I want to be like Paul. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And I don't do the thing I want to do. I'm just like him. I'm like a Bible character. <laughs> that's great, but there's more to this life than you just struggling and having this tension between what you know and what you should be doing. How do we close the gap? How do we close the gap? We have to change how we change. We have to stop addressing symptoms and go to the root. And so how do we change how we change? Number one, we have to change how we think. We have to change the way that we think. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. This is what a lot of us do. We're like, well, I'm going to change. I'm going to be all that God wants. So we go get all these self-help books that are written from a humanistic standpoint. And, and that means that they've just said, we can't factor God into this. We're not going to have any supernatural. So we're just going to do everything we can to tell you from a science standpoint as if there was no God and he didn't create you, but you just evolved how you can change yourself. But, but the Bible says, listen, listen, listen. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person. How is he going to do that? I don't know how God's going to transform you. Oh, he's going to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 
If you're not thinking differently after stepping over the line of faith than you did before, then you're not being transformed. You have to think differently. Because, see, once you begin to think differently, then you're going to learn to know God's will for you, which is where fruitfulness and fulfillment come from. When you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, you're just kind of existing, and you're frustrated, and I'm just going around the loop. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why God keeps me here. Well, if you'll be transformed by changing the way you think, you're going to know what God's will is for you. And good news for you, his will for you is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. It's not bad, unpleasing, and poor. No, it's the opposite. Good, pleasing, and perfect. And we know this, but our lives are all moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Greg Rochelle likes to say that a lot. Your life is moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So if we're going to move and begin to change differently, we're going to have to change the way that we think so that we're thinking the way that God would want us to think. Okay, so if we're going to change how we change, number one, we've got to change how we think. But number two, we're going to have to change where we look. See, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach. It was just cool. What did Jesus preach? I want to know what Jesus preached. He preached this, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent of your sins and turn to God. The, the Greek word for repent means to think differently after. So what's Jesus saying? Hey, we got to think differently about sin and turn to God. So we got to change where we look, right? So here's, here's what we're saying. you got to take your focus off of your problem and start looking to God as the solution. It's not about what we're turning from, but who we're turning to. Without Jesus at the center of our change, we're just reading the Bible as a self-help book. And that's not what our faith is about. See, the secret to lasting change is looking to the one who never changes. I remember as a uh, high schooler, I attended this youth camp. Anybody go to like summer youth camp as a kid? Your parents sent you off, shipped you off? Yeah. Corky's like, yes, I, I was that kid there, yes. Uh, I was a good kid. I didn't prank anybody. We had certain rules. Somebody did let off a fire extinguisher in our room, which was a big mess. Uh, not cool. I don't know if you've ever slept on powder before, but that's what that experience was. Um, but I was at this camp. It was in Indiana, and uh, they had a message. And, and honestly, like, you grow up, like, I grew up in church, and I can tell you, like, I heard my dad preach, I don't know, a thousand messages, and I can probably tell you two of the messages that he preached, which is sad. Um, you can pray for me. But I remember at this camp one message in particular because it stood out to me so much. And uh, I don't know why, if it was just the season of life I was in. But it was talking about this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus, of focusing on him. And the idea is this verse right here where Jesus said that we are to repent of our sin, like we're to, to change the way that we think, we're to stop looking at sin, and we're to turn to God. And the speaker that day, he said, so often what we do is that we know that something's bad. As a teenager, I struggle with pornography. Uh, it's really common. Um, if you have an 11-year-old, well, 80% of them have already seen porn. 
Okay, so let me just help parents. You need to have some conversation if you're not having conversations. Some of you as adults, you're stuck in a habit. Listen, God has better for you. You don't have to continue down that path. There is change available to you. As a teenager, I knew that's bad. I don't want to do that. So I was like, oh, no, here it is. And it was like this this enemy. And it was like, oh, no, pornography is coming at me. I better run this way. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, it's over here, too. And I was trying to run away from the bad. And as long as I kept running away from it, guess what? I kept running into it. It kept popping up. It kept showing up. Oh, I'd have my little streak going. I've not looked at anything I shouldn't look at. I've been doing good. And then, boom, I feel like, you know, it's just like you hit restart on Mario, and you're back to level one. And you're like, no, no, I have to start over again. And you can find yourself getting wore down, feeling as though your life is continually being reset to level one. And so I found myself there at this camp, and the speaker says, man, so often we're running from sin, but God never taught us to run from sin. He taught us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, if Jesus is at the back of the room, and I'm looking at him, and I'm focused on him, none of these other things can affect me. I'm not trying to avoid sin. I'm focused on Jesus. I'm not trying to not do something. I'm trying to pursue someone. And if as long as I pursue someone, I have a clear path. Nothing is going to get in my way. Nothing is going to hinder me because I'm in the path, the will of God. And as long as I move towards him, I'm always good. But so often when we are running away from things that we know are bad, we're missing the change that God wants to do in us. See, as I walk the path of pursuit, that's the path of transformation. Because I'm doing what he wants I'm eyes on him. I'm not developing a new skill. I'm not getting stronger. I'm not exercising my self-will discipline. No, no. I'm following him. And where I'm weak, he's strong. I don't get to, like, pat myself on the back like, look at you. You're not struggling anymore. No. I'm broken. He's not. I just follow him. And the way that I change is I just stay following him. That's it. If we're going to change, we have to change how we're going to change. And we have to change how we think. We have to change who we follow. We have to not just turn away from bad things, but we have to turn to God. So how do we do this? How do we turn to God? How do we pursue him? How do I, how do I make this move? Well, I want to introduce to you this idea that there are certain practices that you can put into your life that help you to walk this path. Certain practices. What would some of those practices be? You guys can yell on that. Go to church, okay? Uh, what was that other one? Read the Bible? Read the Bible. What else? Pray. All right, so those are your top three, right? When I grew up in church, it was real easy. Hey, you're going to become a Christian. There's three things you got to do. Number one, be at church every time the doors are open. That's a good one. Number two, you need to start reading your Bible. And number three, you need to pray. And then they would push it even further. Like, all right, think about it like food, which fits into our series here. Right? So reading the Bible, what is that like? It's like eating food every day. If you don't eat, you get hungry. But if you go hungry long enough, your hunger pains go away. <laughs> this is all part of my discipleship. Um, so you need to eat because if you don't eat, you're going to be weak. And if you're weak, you're not going to be able to stand strong. All right, we're good. Okay, but then we need to breathe Oh, oh, I was eating, but I wasn't breathing. What is breathing? Prayer, right, right? So we got to pray. So now I'm breathing and I'm eating. 
But if you just breathe and eat, you'll be on the biggest loser <laughs> because you're going to be out of shape. You're going to be overweight. So, so we can't just go lock ourselves into our little prayer closet with our Bible. That's, that's not God's goal for you. How do we exercise? What's this exercise look like? Well, that's the fellowship, right? We get with other fellows in a ship. That's how I always learn that, that are going the same way. If you're in a boat with people, you're going the same destination as them. If you're in a boat with people who aren't going to the destination you want, that's, that's not good. You need to abandon ship. You need to get in a ship with fellows going the same way that you are. That's fellowship. And inside of that, that's where you get to work things out in your spirituality. It's where you get to have tough conversations. You get to change at a deeper level. So I, I got to eat the food, I got to breathe, and I got to have fellowship. And those are really important. They're essential. We need those in our life. But I think that there's one more practice that I introduced last week that's important, which is where we actually give God our calendars. We looked at the Old Testament and how Sabbath works. And the idea is that I'm not in charge. I'm not controlling my own destiny, but I'm allowing God to have space in my life. We need to create space for God in our life, not in a legalistic sense, but in a sense that I can rest because it's on him, not on me, right? That's a fourth practice. Wasn't one emphasized when I grew up, but it's an important one. It's in the Bible. But we're going to talk about one more practice. It's the practice we don't want to talk about. Because you can't do a study of the Bible and look at food without looking at the times that people gave up food and fasted. And here's another practice, fasting. It's the least popular of all of the spiritual practices. Some of us tend to think of it as the next level. Oh, that's like next level stuff right there. You've given up food. But when we look in the Bible, fasting spans the entire Bible. We have Moses fasting in the Old Testament. We have Daniel. We have John the Baptist. We have Jesus fasting in the wilderness. We have the early church fasting. We see it all throughout the Bible. And some of you are like, what is fasting? And then somebody from the back row is like, well, it's hard. That's what it is. <laughs> it's challenging. It's, uh, it's headachy. It's difficult. It's when you feel weak. And, um, and listen, no one's perfect, right? We all know that. Um, and no one likes a fake, someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. So I'm going to be honest with you guys. Uh, fasting is not something that I've practiced on a consistent basis ever. But as I look at the Bible, I can't get by the fact that there is this practice. And I think that part of the reason maybe that it's been resisted um, and it's never been spoken about, like why certain groups of people that I'm around have, have not done this, I think part of it's because it was always seen as obligatory. It was an obligation. Like, you have to fast. Like, it was taught to people that way. And I don't know about you, but anytime somebody tells me I have to do something, I don't want to do it. Right? Even if it's a good thing. Like, you have to fast. And I think there's that place of it becoming legalistic. Well, if I have to do it, then it's this legalistic thing. And if I don't do it, I'm wrong. And, and so, but God's not a God of legal. Uh, he, he's a God of relationship. So I can disregard fasting. I don't need to practice that in my life. That's for somebody else some other time. I'm free in the presence of the Lord. Let's go. Like freedom, you know. Let's turn on a Hillsong, let's go. Like, let's get some freedom. We don't need to be giving up food. Who are you? What kind of person does that? Who would deny themselves the comfort of the good things that God has provided? And we have all these things. But I think here's what God's shifting in me. And I want to challenge you with, what if fasting is not an obligation, but rather an invitation? 
What if it's not something that you have to do, but it's something that you're invited to do? Hmm. In the Bible, fasting is never simply about physical health. Because in Scripture, it's about so many other things like repentance and humility and holiness. Is there benefits to fasting uh, physically? The answer would be yes. Um, even if you're not religious, you can fast. There are certain things that is good for your body to rest, for your insulin levels, for how your body works, for what your body burns. We could go down a physical path, but the reason that we fast is not for physical benefits as Christians. I'm not trying to just shape my body to look better so that I feel better. All right? That's not the goal. It's a nice side point, but it's not the point. Fasting, you say, well, what is fasting? Well, in its most clear definition from the Bible, it is to abstain from food or drink as a religious exercise. And this fast can be either entirely, we call it a complete fast, you're just going to live on water and maybe some juices. Um, if the fast lasted longer than a single day, then it might be customary to get rid of certain foods. Um, and so, like, when we look at the life of Daniel, he only ate food that produced food. He only ate seed-bearing foods. He only ate foods that if you put it in the ground, more food would come. Right? So, like, Cheerios, no more Cheerios coming out of the ground. So, like, that would be out. Like, that would be awesome, but not cool. Um, so fasting is this idea that I'm going to abstain from food or drink because I want to align myself with who God is. See, these practices are, are for aligning our lives. And, and so we need to talk about this. So we'll, we'll put that graphic back up of the body, soul, and spirit. See, most of us, we tend to live our lives from the outside in. We try to change the surface. We try to change the symptoms. We try to change what's on the outside. I try to lose the weight. I try to be more peaceful. I try not to yell at my kids as much. I try not to have road rage. I try to change all of the physical exposure of those things and try to control that. But God wants to change us from the inside out. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring our spirit, our soul, and our body into alignment. And so when we accept Christ, our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He activates and brings alive our spirit. But our soul still thinks dumb acts dumb, feels dumb, makes bad choices. The practices that we're talking about of reading the Bible, of prayer, of, of being in church, of fellowship, of practicing a, a moment and creating space in your life and a Sabbath idea to create space for God and fasting is to bring alignment between my body, soul, and spirit. And see, I think fasting is the number one thing that is going to enable you to be led by your spirit, not your body. Let me see if I can explain this. As a Christian, I'm to be led from the Spirit first, inward, out. So I want the Spirit to drive me, and I want my soul to be in submission, and I want my body to be in submission. When I give up food, I am saying no to my body. My soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions are making a choice to say, no, my spirit is going to be in charge. No, I want to focus on who God is. I'm not going to give in to what my body wants. I'm going to give in to what God wants. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, we even see uh, Paul talking about this idea of husbands and wives and, and having sex with one another, that if they're going to take a season to not have sex, well, what is that? A fast from something that you physically crave, 
I'm going to take my physical cravings and make them subject to who God is. Now, we should only do it for a season and then come back together, he says. Anytime we deny our flesh in order to say yes to God, that's a fast. And it brings alignment to our being. Most of the time, we never do that. We never deny our flesh. We live outside in. But this enables me to live inside out. And here's the crazy cool thing about this, is that fasting taps you into the power to resist temptation. See, when you go on a fast, I don't know if you've ever tried to give up food, it's really hard. Like, really hard. Because you want it. Because you crave it. Because you desire it. But see, when I begin to fast, I'm developing something. I'm developing my ability to say no. Because guess what? We all struggle with sin and sh- we all struggle with temptation. That's what Paul said. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. Okay, we're all there. This practice helps me develop my ability to say no. So if you want to have some breakthrough and you want to learn how to say no to temptations and struggles and things that maybe have been addictive that you've had, hey, maybe you ought to try practicing this. Because it helps you to say no so that you'll have that developed so you can say no. Fasting, it's a disruption to your life. Nobody likes it. It's an inversion. It causes us to live inside out, not outside in. I think when you fast, it also boosts your reception to who God is, what he, is has my, like what he might have to say to you, because I'm denying what my flesh wants, and I'm open to who God is. Uh, it disciplines my ability to say no. And I think, finally, fasting also sets you up for whatever's next, whatever's around the corner in your life. See, we don't know what's coming around the corner. You don't know what's going on in your body right now. Maybe the doctor hasn't diagnosed you, but it's already in there. God knows. And God can prepare you for what's coming. How cool is that? But if we don't take time in our life to realign ourselves to focus on him, we're going to miss his help. Now, a final thing on fasting before we end today is uh, there was a woman, she put a book together called Spiritual Freedom Beyond Our Appetites. Lynn Babb is her name. And she says that fasting from food can be problematic in a diet culture, especially for women. As a woman who has struggled with an eating disorder and from obsession with a diet mentally, I can report that fasting from food inevitably triggers thoughts of weight loss. Furthermore, years of extreme dieting have rendered my stomach delicate and easily upset if I go too long without eating. And so Babb says in her book that fasting from all food draws me into a diet place rather than a God place. That is why I appreciate her in this book expanding the meaning of fasting to encompass more than just abstinence from food, but fasting involves, as she says, removing something habitual to experience something new, such as taking a break from listening to music in the car so as to make space for prayer. So I think that for some, you may say, hey, this is my loophole. I'm getting out of fasting. That's where I always was like, good, we can pivot. I'll give up my phone for a week. <laughs> oh, good, I'll stop watching TV. <laughs> okay, we'll turn the radio off. Like, I would always do those things when I have no health reason or psychological reason to not give up food. I just don't want to. All right, so it's not supposed to be easy. But for some of you, I know that you maybe are unable to because of whatever maybe health things are going on. But this is good because the goal of fasting, why do we fast? It's to bring alignment to our being. So denying something that your soul craves, maybe it's social media, maybe it's endless scrolling, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's whatever that thing is that you do that you crave, 
learning to say no to that so you can say yes to the things of God and create space for your life. So I want to encourage you, as we're in this series on food, not to fast on Thanksgiving. Enjoy the meal. But I want you to begin to think about this. Here's a challenge maybe for our church. We're going to have church on New Year's Eve, December 31st. What if we as a community chose to fast the first day of the new year? January 1st, 2024. A day to say, you know what? I want this year to be a year of change in my life. I want there to be alignment, and I want God to do something special. Not just in my life, but in my church and in my city. I want to see people come to know Jesus. And what if we all together... One day, said, I'm going to deny myself to focus on God. What might God do in your life? So you can think, and you can process, and you can pray. I'm giving you a big advance notice. It's not pressure. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. Do you want all that God has for you? Would you bow your heads? God, I thank you that you love us and that you're so kind and patient with us. God, you want us to change, but Lord, so often we, we sabotage ourselves. We don't allow you to do the inward work that only you can do, but instead, we try to do it in our own power. And so God, I pray as we've talked about this idea of fasting, maybe this is the beginning of someone saying, you know what, I think that God's calling me to that. God, I pray that people would be sensitive to what your Holy Spirit's saying. And God, I believe that you want to do something in our city, you want people to come into a relationship with you, God. There's so many people who are hurting, who are far from you, who are living an outside-in life, and it's not working. God, we want to be used by you to help them to know that there's a better way to live, to not follow the customs and behaviors of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind as they follow and pursue you. So God, would you allow us to be the ones who go first? And may there be something about the change in our lives that others see that they desire. Lord, help us to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.